Hello everyone, this is Randy Kim, your host and producer of the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. Thank you for joining me for this season 2 edition centering on the theme 1975. In this episode, I interviewed fellow good friend and storytelling comrade Tony Ho Tran. Tony is a mixed Vietnamese-American writer, storyteller, and genealogist. We met back in the summer of 2018 at a storytelling event hosted by our good friend Ada Cheng. At the time, he spoke about a search to learn his identity through a DNA test he took. It would then lead to a search of finding out who his grandfather was. In this interview, he spoke about that experience while talking about the challenges of growing up being mixed in Sioux City, Iowa. He shed some light on his mom and grandma's painful past during and after the Vietnam War and learned to reconcile with his own family history and acceptance of his identity. Check out this interview. You won't want to miss it. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Viet American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hey everyone, this is uh, Randy Kim with the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. So today I am joined with my good friend, Tony Ho Tran. So Tony, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Randy? I'm doing wonderful. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be here. And yeah. I really appreciate you being on. Um, so I wanted to kind of give a quick uh, introduction how Tony and I met. So back in uh, summer of 2018, uh, you were one of the storytellers for uh, talk stories, an Asian American, Asian diaspora storytelling show that was held at the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, which I serve on the board for. And at that time, I was helping Ada out. I was not quite the produce, uh, co-producer of that show, um, but I was helping out uh, with that show. And also because it was held at the museum, I wanted to make sure everything was going smoothly. So um, when you had spoke, and I believe it was your first time speaking uh, as a storyteller, is that correct? That's right. I had never told this story before then, really outside of like college readings and stuff like that. But yeah. uh, in terms of a storytelling thing, that was my very first time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you uh, meet Ada Chang? I think I met Ada through um, an, either an improv class or like a stand-up comedy class at The Annoyance. Um, I feel like that's how I met half my friends moving to Chicago. You know, it's kind of like a rite of passage. As soon as you move to Chicago, you have to take a, an improv class at like Second City or the Annoyance or IO. And that's pretty much how I ended up meeting with Ada. And I believe Ada had read um, a piece that I had written for HuffPost detailing my family's um, history and my journey into genetic genealogy and to find my grandfather. And that's how she had... Um, how she saw me as you know as a storyteller she she gave me the opportunity to tell at that show where we met and yeah the rest is history as they say yeah i was so thankful to listen to your story because um you had shared about finding who your grandfather uh, was and right. And also this is something we will be talking about later on in this episode so 
I remember being so blown away by your story. I was very moved by it. And, and I appreciate I, that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely connected uh, with it a great deal because as someone sure. who is, uh, who is also Southeast Asian American, uh, mm-hmm. these types of stories are so powerful and also so intersectional. There's so many different right. stories from the Southeast Asian diaspora that we have yet to hear from and that um, oftentimes what we try to do when we tell stories is to break out of that whole single story mindset that right. uh, one story does not make the entire Southeast Asian stories alike. Uh, they're vast, they're diverse, they're complicated, they're layered. So before I go on further, I was wondering if you can uh, introduce yourself. No, for sure. My name's Tony Hotran. I'm a freelance writer and journalist based out of Chicago, Illinois, right now, and also a sometime storyteller, as you know. Um, uh, but yeah, um, right now I just work trying to get my byline in a lot of different places. And uh, yeah, no, just a consummate storyteller. I love telling stories and I love, <coughs> love being able to share uh, my experiences, but not uh only that more importantly i think to be able to listen to the experiences of others at these storytelling events as well and you know and that kind of speaks to what you were saying before um i mean one thing that i learned from you know my journey in storytelling and also from sharing the story that i shared at that talk stories was that the experiences that i had went through while unique was not was not uncommon uh, I had people, you know, coming up to me and uh, talking about how they had gone through similar um, experiences before. And to be able to hear their stories as well and to hear that I wasn't alone was really huge for me. So, yeah, that's my little my my little uh, speech about how much I love this storytelling scene in Chicago and how much I think uh, it's an important thing for uh, not only us as, you know, Asian Americans who have experienced diaspora before just the collective as a whole, you know? Yeah, that is wonderful. And I'm glad that you've been storytelling. I've been fortunate to hear you storytell at other shows. And just, I think each time I hear you tell a story, it brings up stories that I haven't even thought of telling. And it's kind of funny to me how some of your stories in some ways connect to my own stories and it made me want to write and and it's also part of the reason why I love going to storytelling shows specifically with seeing Ada's other shows I feel that I come away finding a story of my own that I had not even thought of that I have not given Mm -hmm. much light to so yeah I'm very thankful that you have been doing uh, that the last uh, few years Uh, so what I wanted to ask you is with this season, we are, or I'm focused on the 1975 theme. Uh, 1975 is a very pivotal year in the Southeast Asian uh, refugee uh, migration to America and to other Western countries. Um, right. We're now at the 45 year mark this year, which is hard to believe. And the adult survivors that had survived the Vietnam War, uh, the Laos Civil War, and the Khmer Rouge are now in retirement age. Now, mm-hmm. when I say the year 1975, what comes to mind? 1975 for me is kind of interesting because I think that year has kind of been abstracted for me. Um, Just sort of in terms of like, I was born in 1992, you know, I'm a millennial. Um, I 
so like a year like 1975 to me for the longest time was just it, it just represented a time that like was pretty much inconceivable to me uh when i think 1975 back when i was like younger say like in middle school or even high school to a certain extent 1975 to me was like disco it was it was uh, the birth of uh heavy metal music in, in led zeppelin you know uh it, it it didn't mean much to me outside of just what I understood from just the culture and watching television and reading books. Um, however, it, it wasn't until like I really started reflecting on my family's history through my genealogy project did I really come to grasp and come to terms uh, with what 1975 actually meant. Um, 1975 was huge. It was pivotal. Uh, it was, it was in, uh, and moreover, I think it was the most consequential year for any um, any Southeast Asian American out there. Um, I think a, a, any Southeast Asian American living today, like I, I don't know of a single one who wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for 1975. Because after all, that was the year when Saigon fell, the South fell, and the country was finally um, you know, some would say reunited, uh, some would say taken over by the communists. Um, to me, ultimately, what 1975 means is it's, it's everything. Like, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now if it wasn't for 1975. I probably wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for 1975, for better or for worse. And, you know, for me personally, it's, it's huge. It sure is, because when I look at my own life, I was born in 1983, um, yeah. about a decade before you were, and yeah. my parents met in the United States, more, much like uh, your parents, which you had told me, uh, were yeah. uh, met in the United States, too. And right. because of the war, we both would not have existed. So when I look back on that theme, I thought to myself, what happens if these events did not happen? Yeah. And what would we be turning into you know we we wouldn't yeah. be you wouldn't be tony ho tran i wouldn't be randy no. kim now we would sure. probably be a different i don't know if you believe in reincarnation but yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know what we would have turned into i mean for sure personally i, I hope mean, in my next lifetime i would turn it into a house cat but um, <laughs> yeah. i'd love to be i'd, I'd love to be, have been uh, been able to turn into my dog right now she lives a pretty good life um <laughs> But that's neither here nor there. But you're totally right, though, and it's kind of a it's kind of a beguiling thought exercise, isn't it, to think about what would have happened if 1975 didn't happen, or if it went a different way. You know, like what if the South was able to remain, or what if the the, the communists hadn't been successful of their takeover? Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and uh, it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary to think about it. Like really. It sure is. It's it's something that always uh, goes through my own mind constantly you know what would have happened if the Khmer Rouge did not take over Cambodia what would have yeah. happened to my dad what would have happened to my dad then um, but the thing is you know I, I mean I'm sure you, you could um, empathize with this but I kind of struggle with that because to to say that because I mean what happened in 1975 in the Vietnam War as a whole and something like Khmer Rouge was terrible it was awful yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it impacted tens of millions of lives. Millions of people lost their lives because of what happened. Um, people, people starved because of what happened in 1975. Um, but we, we, you and I owe everything to it. Like, how could we possibly say that, you know, 
yeah. we, 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 we would totally, we, we totally re regret what happened when we owe our entire lives and our existence to it, you know? So yeah, I mean, it's something I, I kind of struggle with to this day, like to think about like, well, well, it was bad, but, but there was also good that came from it, you know? And mm -hmm. I think, I think that's something we got to keep in mind. Right. And it also shows you that, that, that there is life after um, the refugee yeah. uh, migration and the well, mass exodus that had happened. Yeah. So, and the, here we are now uh, looking back on that particular time in history, but also of uh, the history that we have experienced on our own. Right. And, and the current uh, history that we're making now that we could pass on to uh, younger generations. So uh, you talked about growing up in Sioux City, Iowa, and I was wondering if you can share your own experiences of what that was like for you. How did your family arrive to Sioux City, Iowa? For sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think, yeah, let's just start at the very beginning, right? So my, my uh, father came over here back in the 80s. I believe it was the early to mid 80s is when he came over. And he came over as a refugee. He had been, he was one of the boat people. And I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but the boat people was this phenomenon that happened uh, following the events of the Vietnam War, where there were just 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 hundreds of thousands of refugees trying to escape Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And the only way they could really do it was by fitting themselves onto these ramshackle boats. And sometimes they would pack them, you know, hundreds of people at a time on these tiny fishing trawls, which mm. is uh, one of the things that one of the boats that my father ended up on uh, with the hopes of eventually making it to a place like Malaysia or the mm. Philippines uh, in order to seek asylum. And my father was one of these people. He, he went through an arduous journey himself, um, risking life and limb in order to escape Vietnam. Uh, and he eventually made it to Malaysia. And from there, he lived there for a few years at this refugee camp uh, called Pilau Bidong and uh, just filled with refugees. And he lived there for I think about three years before he was able to uh, make his way to the Philippines with his brothers, where there he learned English and he was eventually able to attain a green card to go to America. Uh, and that's how he was able to come to America. And um, he was part of a resettlement program that uh, uh, that placed him in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where there was a large Vietnamese community there already, being placed there through the various churches and, and uh, nonprofit groups that would help resettle refugees. And my father lived in America for, for about, about a decade before my mom came along. Uh, she came along in the, the early 90s, and um, uh, she came through in a lot different uh, way than my father did because my, my mother was the child of a uh, American soldier and a Vietnamese woman. Uh, she was also also known as a Mi Lai, which means just like mixed breed or half breed. And um, she she was able to come over here through a program the United States government actually had uh, because at that time they were aware that, you know, thousands of their soldiers had, had fathered children in Vietnam because um, soldiers are going to do what they're going to do, uh, especially when you're young and you're hot-blooded and you, you're in a foreign country. You're going to, I mean, you're going to uh, look, try to find girls, try to meet people and whatnot. And inevitably what happens is, you know, children, children happen. 
And my mother was just one of those children. And um, so she grew up her whole life not knowing who her father was because he left uh, shortly before the fall of Saigon in 1975. she never knew his name or his race or anything like that. Um, but she was able to verify somehow that he was an American soldier. And the United States government at this time, in response to this, uh, this, this event, where just thousands of their own soldiers were fought their children in a foreign mm-hmm. land, they um, had a program that allowed um, the children of these soldiers uh, in order uh, um, to be naturalized as citizens in America. And so that's how my mother was able to come through. Mm-hmm. And she was able to bring her mom too, my, my grandmother. And yeah, they uh, were processed and they eventually were resettled in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my father was. And that's where they met. And I believe they, uh, they lived in Pittsburgh for about uh, two, two or three years. Um, until uh, I came along, my dad's gonna do what he was gonna do, and uh, they had me. And I uh, lived with them in Pittsburgh, just me, just like infant child, uh, for about a year before. Um, my dad was convinced by one of his brothers, my uncles, to move to a place called Sioux City, Iowa, or South, more specifically, South Sioux City, Iowa. It's in um, South Sioux City, Nebraska, I should say, because it's just right across the river. But um, because that area was filled with jobs, uh, there's a big meat packing industry there. And one of the factories there, Tyson Foods, was hiring laborers to work on the line. And so my father and my mom and myself packed up everything in Pittsburgh and moved over there. And the rest is history. I mean, we lived in Sioux City, Iowa, pretty much most of my life until recently. Uh, they've moved to Denver since then. But yeah, they opened up a restaurant, a Chinese and Vietnamese restaurant mm-hmm. there. And that's where I grew up, bussing tables, learning how to add up numbers in my head, like uh, how to add up tips and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, um, it was an interesting experience growing up in Sioux City as a Vietnamese American, um, especially one who was mixed as well, because I grew up, you know, learning Vietnamese just just like any other Vietnamese American child and being steeped in this culture. But I remember like distinctly feeling that even within the Vietnamese community, I was being othered almost because of who my mother was and who my grandfather was. Um, Whenever I would interact with Vietnamese people there, they would always kind of like do a double take whenever I spoke to them in Vietnamese or like, wait, what? This kid knows Vietnamese? Because um, even then I, like, I didn't look full Vietnamese, so they, they weren't entirely sure where I stood. And, um, and it, it, it was interesting because I, I had that feeling with the Vietnamese community, but I also had that feeling with like the just like white community there too, you know? Sioux City, Iowa, I mean, uh, it's right smack dab in the middle of the Midwest. It is as white as the driven snow, as they say, you know? <laughs> and um, it's filled with just like, just normal work a day, just white people. Was there a large and, Vietnamese community in Sioux City? And oh, yeah. were you, and were you, was your family a big part of that community as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean like, there, there, there was a lar- there is a larger Vietnamese community in, in I think all of Iowa than you would ever think so. I, I read a statistic recently that the most commonly spoken language outside of English and Spanish in the state of Iowa is Vietnamese. I mean, there's a ton of people there and they're, they're all working farm jobs or they're working at meat packing plants, what have you, because those jobs need to be filled. And I mean, 
my parents chose a different road. They, they opened up a restaurant with uh, my uncles and my aunts. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, they, were, they were a part of the Vietnamese community. I wouldn't say they were like a large part, but they were there. We would go to Vietnamese mass, the, the Catholic mass there would always have a Vietnamese service. We'd go to different parties, sing karaoke, uh, have a few Heinekens, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we were a part of the Vietnamese community to be sure. Yeah, and you had talked about like how you recognize being othered at a very early age. Uh, yeah. In the school that you were growing up, what was your interactions like with your peers? With my peers, it was, I mean, it got, uh, I want to say it, it got better when I got older, but I'm not even sure if that's necessarily true. But, um, uh, I was the only Vietnamese kid in my elementary school for like the first few years I was there. Let's put it that way. And like at that age, like to be told like, why do you look different? You know, like being, being approached at the playground or, 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 or just like in, in the classroom and just being like, Hey, why are your eyes squintier than mine? Or like, hey, can, can you can you see right now? And I'm just like, like weird racist questions like that, and having to just like straight up respond like, yeah, like I, I'm 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 as normal as you. Like I I don't I don't I I don't understand what the deal is. Like, and um, so like e even early on, like even in the classroom, I knew I kind of stood out. I was different, and that there was something different about me. You know, yeah. and um. And, you know, it, it got tougher in middle school because all middle schoolers are jackasses and <laughs> they're all going to be bullies to one another. But um, yeah, I think it was especially bad then because I had transferred schools to a different school in Sioux City, Iowa, where I ended up being like one of the first like Asian kids they had ever seen in their entire lives. Oh, wow. And so having to interact with them and to get essentially what I got in kindergarten, but like with these middle schoolers who have like these more fully formed brains who and they could like pick at like <laughs> pick on you a little bit harder um it was it was it was rough but um I, you know I, I survived it i mean i mean how, how was it for you growing up i mean yeah. you're, you're in illinois you know i grew up like outside of chicago i grew up sure. in a city of west Ham, which i live now yeah. uh most recently uh westmont is a working class white um suburb and yeah I was one of the few Asian kids in my class, the only Southeast Asian person, um, practically through, through my entire uh, grade school through college, uh, up until uh, the end of high school. Yeah. And it was a challenge, I have to say, because granted, I had the access to go to Asian Argyle up in the Chicago North side every weekend, sure. uh, which I used to hate as a kid because of the long drives there. But I struggled not having any Vietnamese or Cambodian peers to yeah. hang out with. And yeah. it was especially difficult because I, there was so much pressure to try to uphold my parents' culture. But at the same time, I felt like I also had to lose it in order to survive uh, being in school to feel normal among my peers. I was, oh, right. I was embarrassed to have my friends around my parents constantly because yeah just to fit in i remember yeah. i remember going to like the lunchroom and bringing like a, 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 
packed lunch that my mom made me. And it was, it was something like, it, it was just something simple too. It was just like, yeah. it was just like rice and, 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 and pork chops. But I remember even then like showing up at the lunchroom and like opening this up and it wasn't like just a ham and cheese sandwich like everyone else had. And they were like, yeah, what, what? what is that? That's gross. Like, what are you, what the hell are you eating? And I remember- It's terrifying. Like the, yeah, oh, it's terrifying. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely um, petrifying when yeah. like you're fearing what your mom is making for you and yeah. you can't eat that food. You can't bring that food because that is a, that is a Pandora's box that you're opening up to get made fun of. Um, I remember it yeah, as a right. five-year-old kid. I'll never forget this. Um, on my first day of school, I remembered my mom just sends me on the school bus. I had no idea what was going on. Oh, and no. I did not realize I had to get off at that school. I was still in that bus. And I think I was all the way in the back. I was hiding. Oh, no. I really did not want to go. And, you know, the first couple of years uh, being in from like kindergarten up into like fourth grade, I was terrified. I was mostly mute. Uh, oh, sure. when I think about yeah. it because I rarely talked. Um, my kindergarten teacher once wrote on my report card that she only heard me speak 20 words all year. <laughs> yeah. and you it's know, amazing. <laughs> like, it's kind of funny now because yeah. everybody who knows me knows that yeah. I am very gregarious. I can be very out there and kind of an attention whore. But back then in growing up, I was really no, doing you, everything I can yeah. to minimize my own presence. And it was yeah. hard not to because I was a tall kid, which is very funny for an Asian kid, but I was taller than most were you tall? Were you taller than back then? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was considered tall. I mean, I would think yeah. I was like about yeah. several inches taller than the, than the next person. I was, uh, I was tall. I, I was tall too, and that, that kind of threw people off because not only had they never seen an Asian kid, they'd never seen like a tall Asian kid before. They were like, yeah. Wait, what? They had this not seen a tall, yeah, they yeah. had not seen this a tall wasn't, Asian kid. This wasn't part of the deal. Like, what is this? Like, you can be Asian, you can be tall, you can't be both. But yeah, they <laughs> I had was a, both, yeah. Yeah, they had a tall, like, they had never seen a tall Asian with big eyes because <laughs> I, yeah, I had big eyes. Yeah. I had the squinty yeah. ones that uh, people would always make fun of me, but I remember even growing up when people would do that the slant eye gesture and I'm like thinking to myself my eyes are bigger than you <laughs> yeah like that doesn't make any sense like that it's not affecting me right yeah, now yeah exactly but yeah. a lot of other things did for sure yeah. um but you know going back to your mom and your grandma and uh, yeah. had talked about your mom not knowing who her father was but when did you start realizing that you wanted to ask well coming home from school when people are telling you that you don't look like this, you don't look like that. Yeah. They're not sure of who you are. What did you tell your parents or what did you ask your parents? And how was oh, their man. response? I mean, I was a pretty curious kid pretty much from the get go. You know, like my mom always told me whenever I was a baby, I would just be crawling around everywhere. Like I would get lost and she'd like, where did, where did Dung go? Like, like where, did, where did he go? Dung is my Vietnamese name. But it's like, where'd he go? And because um, I, I, I've always been very curious. So like when it comes to like myself, I've always been especially curious, you know? Because how can you not when there's such a huge, a huge part of you that you're not, you're not privy to, you understand? Like, like in in America and in this country, so much of who you are and the way that people perceive you is based on your race. 
and what you look like. Mm -hmm. So much of it, pretty much all of it, you know? The first thing they see about you, they're gonna make an assumption about you uh, based on the way you look. And if they don't know, they're gonna ask you, you know? So like, I always tell people one of the most common questions I had growing up and even to this day is, what are you? People will come up to me and at the grocery store or at the gym, you know? And they'll just, they, they won't, without even saying hello, without even saying, hey, how's your day going? They'll just be like, so, so what are you? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's I, I used to be really frustrated with it, but, but now I just really kind of take it on stride. And I think part of it is because I know now, you know? Mm. But, but back then when I was a kid, uh, pretty much early on, like from kindergarten, when I started interacting with other kids and they started asking me, what are you? I started to wonder myself. So I remember being as old as like five or six and coming up to my mom after school and being like, why do I, not only like, why, why do I look different from all the other kids at school, but why do I look different from all the other Vietnamese kids? And she would, she would tell me it, like even as early on then, it was like, oh, it's your grandfather. Your grandfather wasn't Vietnamese, he was an American soldier. And really, that, that, that wasn't enough for me. Like, I was like, okay, he, he was an American soldier. And so I would ask her pretty much constantly, I'd be asking her, like, do you remember anything about him? Like, what he looked like, what his race was? But, but you know, my mom was, was only a baby when she, like, quote unquote, met her, her father. So she, she doesn't really remember. And I would ask my grandmother too, but mm -hmm. my grandmother was really cagey about <laughs> telling us like who is what, what his real identity was. She would tell us very vague things like he was very tall or that he had a beard. That was about it. You know, she wasn't going to be like, oh, he was this such and such race or I think he was such and such ethnicity. She didn't even know his name. And so, yeah, pretty early on, I was like very curious about who I was and where I came from. Mm -hmm. With your, uh, with your grandma, I was wondering yeah. when you had those interactions uh, with your grandma, I always wondered um, because in the Vietnamese community, there's a heavy stigma with yeah. Vietnamese oh, yeah. women uh, having children with American soldiers. Oh yeah. Especially with African-American soldiers. There's oh, a yeah. lot of anti-blackness that are, Southeast Asian community yeah. is clearly, clearly struggling with. Oh, yeah. And, and as being a second generation Southeast Asian American, as a person of color in this country, it is very upsetting to me. It's very upset. It should be upsetting to our community that anti-Blackness and xenophobia within our own communities are still quite rampant and yeah, do nothing rampant. and do nothing to liberate us from the prejudices and discrimination that we still face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering with your grandma and what her parents, your great grand your great grandparents, yeah. I wonder if your great grandparents had known what had happened and what that must be like for your grandma to father a child. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and dealing with the stigma from not only her family but the community itself like you become this sure. black sheep uh, within yeah. your whole town because you had fathered a child and yeah. 
And unfortunately, that's affected her ability to become a mother to your mother. So I was yeah. wondering if you're able to um, shed some light into that or if this that's is- a, That's a great question. Uh, just for some context for your listeners, I had I later found out that my grandfather was an African-American soldier. He was, he was a, black, a black man who served in the Vietnam War. And I, I think that's important to know because you're, you're absolutely right. There, there is, there is um, a, a, an undercurrent. I shouldn't even call it an undercurrent because sometimes it's just very clear as day. A, a, where Vietnamese people are incredibly uh, bigoted and prejudiced against the African-American community, the black community as a whole. And it's terrible. And sometimes it's, it's, it, is, it is terribly ironic because the things, because Vietnamese people, any person of color is familiar with what it's like to be, um, what it's like to be discriminated against. And I, I know that for sure within the Vietnamese community, they all know what it's like. And yet to, to turn it around and do it to another community, I think is just so, it's so silly. Like yeah. why do that, you know, like, like, are you, are you serious? Like you know how it is to be, to be called to be called a chink, you know, or to yeah. be called a gook, or to be to be to be asked if you eat dog. Like what? Like we we go through that like all the time. Sorry about that. Yeah, we go, we go through that all the time. Like why would we want to bring that sort of that same energy, that same bigotry, to another race? It it, yeah. it it's mind boggling. I also look at it, and also from a, another lens here. The Civil Rights Act bill was passed in 1865, and so was the immigration right. bill that same year. Yeah. And if it wasn't for uh, the Black communities advocating for the civil rights, fighting for the civil rights movement, right. there would be no immigration bill. There would be no both of those bills. Yeah. And therefore, we would not be existing in a country that the U.S. had its hands in uh, creating state-sponsored violence. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I find it so frustrating and also very important to discuss that our community still struggles with that issue and that it affects people like your mom and your grandma yeah, yeah. the fact I mean, that yeah. the fact that it tore her own family apart and that yeah. it led your mom to deal with the stigma of being yeah. a mixed uh yeah. vietnamese person in vietnam so i mean yeah yeah i mean what what happened to my mom is uh, after she was born, um, my, my, my grandmother pretty much knew right away that my mom was going to have a hard life. Because in Vietnam back then, especially, um, to have fathered a child that was not only A, mixed race, but also B, the, the daughter of an American soldier, the, these imperialists, these colonizers, essentially, who who came through and like destroyed our country, or so-called destroyed our country, you know, in the perspective of people who were loyal to the Communist Party, the this was this was this that was awful, you know. The that's what my mother represented to a lot of people, you know. Uh, she represented what happened to their country, the destruction of culture, the destruction mm. of, of Vietnamese bodies, you know, of lives, mm. of generations of people who, who that won't ever, you know, continue their line again. It, that's what my mother and a lot of other Milai 
ultimately represented to these people as wrong as they were, you know, that's, that's the way they felt. And so um, my grandmother, when my mom was born, was unable to take care of her because I think my grandmother herself just wasn't in a good place to sort of like personally, like she, she, she didn't have a good job to, to, uh, to support my mother. And she was also a single mother. So she called upon the help of a friend of hers who had a farm south of Saigon called Kanta. No, in a village south of Saigon called Kanta. They lived on a farm there. And that's where my mom ended up growing up uh, with this family. And she worked, you know, doing uh, just farm work, uh, uh, collecting rice in the rice paddy, uh, tending to the oxen, that kind of thing. And much, that's pretty. Oh, that's pretty much. You know, that's pretty much where my mom grew up her, her yeah. entire young life. And we had discussed earlier, um, separately, yeah. that your mom had to quit her education at right. a really young age because the torment from her classmates were so severe that she had to drop out of school. Yeah, this is kind of like a, a subject I know my my that's kind of sensitive for my mother. I mean, for good reason though. You know, when you think about it. Um, my 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 mom was was horribly bullied. Uh, her, along with any other kid who was the child of a, of an American soldier, was horribly bullied throughout school, and it it got so bad that she eventually just couldn't couldn't take it anymore. I mean, like her life was in danger. <laughs> you know what I mean? From 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 how badly she was being bullied, and so yeah, she had to she had to quit school at a relatively young age. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but. It was certainly, it was certainly young, you know, um, preteen, and mm. she just devoted the rest of her young life to working on the farm instead. And yeah, I mean, it's a shame because this isn't this isn't a thing that like you would ever expect to happen now, you know. <laughs> Like we wouldn't imagine someone being bullied so badly, so badly for their race and who their father was that they had to quit school and that they had to go work on a farm. You know, nowadays people would hopefully knock on wood, you know, ideally people would intervene for that sort of thing. We have systems set up to help uh, protect those kids. But, um, you know, back then, especially in rural Vietnam, those systems just weren't there. Mm. So, you know, my my mom my mom's one of the smartest people I know. You know, I I think she she got her education in other ways, um, uh, in the school of hard knocks. You know, but um, ultimately, yeah, she 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 went through a lot of strife though when she was younger. For who she was, I wonder how the absence of your grandma's parenting of your mother affected uh your mom's ability to become a parent to you and your brother hmm. i was wondering uh yeah. what did you notice growing up that felt different from other uh, american parents you know it's it's kind of it, it's it's funny because i i think my mom is the best mother on earth and i think oh. i think a lot of people think that about our moms but i think my mom especially because i i don't think her having grown up without a direct relationship to the woman who gave birth to her, my grandmother, my, my Bawai, impacted the, the great parent that she ended up being to me and my brother, you know? And I think that's a, that, that's a testament to something that kind of goes on in a deeper level for some people, you know? 
she she might not have gotten like direct parenting lessons from from her dad or or her mom but she got it she got it through through observing the way her her stepmother the mother who the the lady who took her in mm. treated her and raised her but also just through a deep love um that i think kind of happens between mothers and their children you know i think mm. i think truly that there is something there oftentimes that you can't you can't quantify mm. you can't really measure it it's something that kind of screams out to them to to act and to love in their very DNA, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't think her not having contact with my boy ever impacted the, the, the woman she ended up being. That's incredible. Uh, in, ter- in, in, ter- in terms of, you know, being a good mother to me and my brother. That's incredible because I see the relationship that from living vicariously through your, your social media, you have sure. such a close bond with your family and it's yeah. very apparent that you have this, this unbreakable bond well you you, you know the thing is i think if anything my mother knows the value of 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 a good parent and a good family system because of what she went through you know i think for for some people you know they might lose sight of that and i think for other people like my mother they they know how important it is to to support your family and to support your children and to be there for them you know that goes for my father too but uh, especially my mother because of what she went through with your grandmother i was wondering what your relationship was like with her and yeah. also i wonder and i don't know if this is too touchy of a subject here so sure. forgive me if i ask this question no it's okay uh for your grandma as she was you know as you and her or you and your brother were developing this relationship with your grandma you know through the years yeah i wonder did it also impact uh her relationship with your mother um you know my my grandmother is also a very wonderful woman i i love my grandmother to bits to me she is a very like prototypical like grandmother like growing up like she was always there like she would make us like super greasy rice whenever we came over she was always quick to hug us and kiss us and tell us she loved us and what have you um i i love my grandmother i know my brother loves loves my grandmother too and i i know my grandmother loves us she'll always tell us that you know she'll call me and she'll tell me like the very last thing she'll tell me is like i love you and she'll say that in english to make sure that i really get it you know and um and i i think it kind of goes back to what i was saying before i think i think there's just something sometimes there's something deep within people that they understand like i love this person and i can't quite explain why um my 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 uh mom and grandmother's relationship i think is kind of a complex one due to like their, right. their past um i can't really speak too much about it because i i haven't really been there um for for the majority of it but i know that uh, I, I don't i don't even really want to speculate too much about it because i really don't know mm-hmm. um i know my mother is confused about why my 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 grandmother kind of kept that secret of um, my grandfather's identity secret for so long of her life um but i i think she can also empathize with the fact that my grandmother also might have been a little bit ashamed 
of the idea that her her daughter's father was a black man you know and it kind of goes back to what we were discussing before about just sort of this lingering bigoted feelings that the Vietnamese have towards other races and also you know American soldiers as a whole back then so you took this a DNA test uh, a few years ago uh, through 23andMe and you set on this journey to discover who your grandfather was and you had already described him from what you knew growing up now what was your feelings then as you took that dna test what were you hoping to discover uh besides finding out who your grandfather was uh, but what was going through your mind during this dna test oh i was i was excited but i think moreover i was terrified by the potential of learning what I had sought for so long. And I, to be honest, I'm not even sure what I was really terrified by, but I, I remember distinctly receiving the kit following the instructions. And I remember it was a night uh, where I had packed the kit up and I had to mail it back in this pre-addressed box back to 23andMe. And it was me and another friend of mine. Uh, we, we, we had made plans to go out to a bar later that night to just go grab a few drinks. And I remember like, okay, I'm gonna grab this box and mail it. And I remember walking to the mailbox on the corner um, of, of, uh, of Broadway and Briar where that mailbox was uh, right outside of my studio apartment. And I remember my hands like kind of physically shaking as I like opened up the mailbox and push this box through. And I remember just like having this moment where I was like, all right, it's, it's, it's out there now. Like this is going to happen. And I also knew that the next few weeks were going to be the longest weeks of my life because it was going to answer so many questions that I have had. So many questions my mother has had, my brother has had, and my grandmother has had for so long. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day the um, the results came back in. I had received an email notification while I was in the middle of a meeting at work, and I looked at my phone, and immediately my heart started pounding out of my chest. But I couldn't wait until the meeting. I had to wait until the meeting was over in order to check it, you know. And I remember after the meeting, I ran to my desk and I booted up my my computer and I pulled up my email, and I remember just like just having cold sweats as I clicked on the link for the results. And as soon as it happened, you know, there it all was, what race I was, like the biggest questions that I had. (laughs) And it said that I was, you know, part African-American, part European, and um, uh, like 75%, you know, Southeast Asian. And it was was crazy. I was like, because there it all was, you know, (laughs) Like, like I, my grandfather was a black guy. He was black. That's what he was. And it was almost like kind of like a really anticlimactic moment because it was like, well, here it is. Like these, the answers to the question you've been searching for for so long, here it all is on this desktop platform that we designed for you. Mm. It was crazy. Like I, I, I <laughs> and I remember like be, seeing that they were able to connect me with like quote unquote cousins, you know, out there, people I was wow. like, related to. And I remember just being like, holy crap what have I gotten myself into? 
And so, you know, I called my mom later that night and told her the news and she was just like, wait, what? And I know she was surprised too. And she was kind of like processing the information herself. And yeah, from there, I worked hard for the next like two to three years trying to find my, the actual identity of my grandfather, you know? And that involved a lot of different things. That, that involved like connecting with, um, connecting with different cousins, taking a look at their family tree. I worked with a wonderful woman named Elizabeth Hazelton, who um, is a teacher in Iowa, Waterloo, Iowa now, but she was like incredibly instrumental to me and helping me figure out my, the identity of my grandfather. And yeah, finally, two to three years later, um, in January, I, I, I found his identity and it was huge. It was crazy. You know, like I, I had received another email from uh, a lady after I had given her a bunch of information and asked her some questions about like, okay, I'm looking for this guy. He served in the Vietnam war, um, probably around these years. Um, do you, does anyone fit that description? And she was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's my uncle. That's my uncle. <laughs> that's my uncle, uh, Keith, Keith Brown. I was like, holy crap. And I remember looking frantically looking up his name and everything and it completely checked out like the years where he was in Vietnam, uh, how old he was, uh, everything made sense. Mm. And the other thing was he, he, he was dead. He had died. You know, when did he die? He, he was the other thing. He died in 2013. So by this point he had been dead for, gosh probably five years just about wow yeah and it was weird i was in college then like i remember like taking a look at the date where he died and like thinking like what the hell was i doing then like what was i doing the day my grandfather died Mm. and i was in college and it wasn't like when i was in college i didn't have access to these dna testing kits or anything like that because i I, and it was a weird moment for me because i was like I, was, I felt kind of guilty that I, I, I couldn't find him sooner, that I couldn't help facilitate, like, you know, because, like, while doing this whole thing the whole time, I'm, like, imagining scenarios, you know? I'm imagining, like, oh, what if I was able to reunite my mom and her dad, you know? And I was able to shake the hand and the man, like, gave, gave my family life. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was kind of, it, it was really intense, like, to realize that that he had died and I kind of like have pretty complex emotions about it now but I understand you know at the end of the day there's nothing I could have done you know yeah you had connected with his family members though uh, recently and I thought that must have been so powerful not just for you and your brother but really for your mom and how's your grandma connected with that family (laughs) um it was very powerful for me and my family as a whole I was able to connect with Keith's brother, my, my great uncle or my mom's uncle. And um, he's this very sweet man named Clifton who lives in, um, in Colorado Springs, just about an hour's drive away from where my parents live now, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. But um, he's a, um, it was wonderful being able to see him because he, he was such a nice guy. And he was also, he told us later that he was nervous to meet us too because he, he also wanted to like make a good impression, meet yeah. his family members and to meet the child of his brother, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, 
it was wonderful. And I, I honestly, like, it's one of the best memories I ever had being able to facilitate this for my, be able to do this for my, for my mom and my brother, you mm -hmm. know, because it wasn't just for, for, for me at the end of, you know, it, it was, it was, it was mostly for my mom, you know, um, to be able to see her do this, uh, to, to, be, to be able to see her like reunite and unite with someone who was closely related to her father and knew her father. It was so nice. And it was great to hear like stories about not only her father, but also her grandfather, my great grandfather, you know, the man who raised the uh, key, uh, Clifton and, um, to, to know where we came from then it was it was great it was super great yeah. um when it comes to my grandmother no she hasn't like had any interactions with them i think my my grandmother and I, i'm sure you're familiar with this is like very much like the past is in the past yeah. you know yeah like, why bother i was wondering what did your uncle tell you about uh your grandfather what was sure. he able to share? How was he able to describe him? So I don't know what it is, but apparently like familial estrangement is common in my family. But uh, I know with my, with my uncle, he had kind, kind of a rocky relationship with his brother, my grandfather. Mm. And it was rocky to the point where they were kind of estranged from each other. and They hadn't spoken for a few years. And I remember I had actually emailed him. Like once I found out who my grandfather was, I emailed my 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 uncle because i had found him his information on a, a separate ancestry database and i was like hey are you this guy's brother and um <laughs> he emailed me back yes um uh yeah yeah that that, that is that is who i am uh he, i remember his subject line like once i described like the in the first email i described the relationship i had with with my grandfather he was like oh hello nephew exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point oh my like, gosh it was very sweet and i was just yes. like oh that's, that's wonderful but i remember like i i had emailed him too like oh yeah like just kind of in passing without even thinking about it like yeah and uh i saw that that uh, i was related to keith and that keith had died in 2013 what have you didn't really think about it i sent that email he emailed me back like Keith, Keith is dead. I was like, oh, and I was like, uh oh, like, and I was like, yeah, I, because uh, they they have pictures of like the gravestones of different people. I was like, yes, here's the find the grave information about it. And wow. I remember like, yeah, he, like he he was so estranged from his brother that he didn't even realize that he had passed away. Wow. Yeah, which isn't to say that's anything bad, you know. Like families are complicated, you know. Yeah, happens sometimes. I was just but thinking he, he didn't know that his brother had passed away. I was just thinking about this for a moment too, but with him being a veteran, being mm -hmm. a soldier, I, I can only imagine like how common family separations, you know, estrangements, I should say, um, have happened as a result of PTSD, as a result of veterans who come home from war. And right. this unchecked rage, yeah. trauma that uh, goes untreated and yeah. dealing with family members who don't understand their experience right here's the thing i i don't know i don't know for you sure you don't know if what what, what my know. grandfather went through but right. maybe here, here's what i do know i do know that when he went to vietnam and he fathered my mom that my grandfather was married and he had two kids then wow so i think that 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 might have added to like what eventually happened but um yeah he, he was married he had two kids and yeah i mean 
it made me realize like that people are complex. Like, like yeah. family relationships are way more complex than like, I, so. I can imagine you trying, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I can imagine myself having to reach out to his kids, be like, Hey, um, yeah. by the way, and yeah. telling him that news. I don't know if it's something that you have gone that far, but I can I, imagine how terrifying I mean, that must've been. Let's put it this way. I've had the contact information for both my aunts, like my mom's sisters uh, for years now. And I just haven't been able to work up, find the words to do it, which is ironic because I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. Like I do this for a living, you know, like people pay me money to write words for them. And I can't find the words myself to reach out to them and say, hey, I'm your nephew. (laughs) My goodness. How do you how do you even do that? You know? I don't know either. I, yeah, I, I don't I don't envy you being in that kind of position, especially when you have yeah. this information on your fingertips and yeah. the rest of his family have no idea that this happened. Yeah, so, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I, when, I, when I remembered uh, my brother wanting to do his, the DNA test, I had no interest in it, which was kind of funny because most people would think that I would be the one advocating for this because I'm a very curious person just like you. Uh, I yeah. have a very innate curiosity of my family's history and yeah. it's kind of why I've been doing the work that I've been doing with the Cambodian Museum to understand my dad's uh, struggles living in the Khmer Rouge and yeah. also with the Vietnam War. I think that's but, wonderful by the way. I think, I think, I think anyone who, who has that curiosity and takes it to that kind of level to explore it, I mean, that's that's awesome. I, I think more people well, should thanks. do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I encourage that. I, I really, really encourage that. And just even to have discussions, opening up dialogue. But right. um, yeah, when my brother took the DNA test, I didn't care for it for a few reasons. One being the security, the privacy issues among oh, yeah. with the DNA test. I really I already give up enough of my privacy as it is being on social media <laughs> yeah. uh, and having very convenient technology to pay my bills yeah but you, you give it away to ticket master too um yes yeah, so thanks for calling me out like that <laughs> thanks for calling me out hey you're gonna go see some great shows this year so don't I, even <laughs> i will I, I will for my own uh, sacrifice of privacy that's for sure yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah and so that was one of them and second yeah. because i'm like thinking to my i'm thinking to myself well i know i'm vietnamese i know i'm cambodian i know that that's what i've been right and if anything i might also be chinese because that lineage is always going to get connected to it and so yeah when i looked at uh the dna results my brother put me on google hangout which i thought was hilarious because that tells me that he's got a lot to say about the results um yeah and also going into health concerns too which i really did not want to have to hear um but he he had sure. said i'm 50.1 percent or we're 50.1% Vietnamese, 33.8% Khmer, uh, 6.6% Chinese, uh, Southern <laughs> Chinese from Guangdong. And there's like a 10% that's still inconclusive that could be either in the Vietnamese side or the Chinese side. Right. And so, yeah, well, hearing that, uh, it did made me appreciate the makeup of it. But also what I really appreciated was where the um where my family's pathway has been which i thought right. was uh quite interesting to me uh i did not realize that my mom's side of the family came from 
China into Hanoi in the early part of the 20th century. Right. Which I had no idea that our family had touched Hanoi at all yeah. uh, during that, even that early. Um, even that recent, I should say, even though it's been like 100 years, yeah. give or take. Uh, but what I did find out uh, was my mom told us a story saying that my grandma had an older sister and they were very poor and um, my great grandma was a single mother right. uh, raising three children right. so she had to give away her oldest daughter mm. to a family and this was very common in Vietnam if you were very poor you had to give away one of your children to yeah. to be cared for by a rich parent like as a servant yeah. a lifetime servant basically yeah and it it broke my heart a great deal because my uh, mom knew about it from my grandma. My grandma had not told uh, my mom's siblings about this. Right. And she decided to ask that question again a few years ago. Uh, my grandma was at that time advancing into Alzheimer's dementia. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, she could not remember by that point. So wow. it's, it's powerful. But what I will say the takeaway was growing up when I would hang out in the Bayou La Battery of Alabama where my grand, my, where my grandma lived yeah. up until her death a year and a half ago, she would always cry a lot when my family would leave to go back home. And I thought it was because of the Vietnam War. I thought that had a lot to do with it because, you know, when my grandfather coming back from home from the war, it was terrifying to my grandma and to uh, my mom and her siblings. But it actually, to me, I felt it went further. And I'm thinking to myself, what that must be like for my grandma to have to say goodbye to her oldest sister. What that transaction must have been like and that right. breaks my heart a great deal. And when I found out about that story, it just, I can't help but feel a sense of sadness and what happened yeah. to uh, my great aunt and yeah. what had become of her. Did she survive? Did she have family? I don't know, but I will say that my mom has no interest going further than that because yeah. in, the, in our own culture, there's certain things that were just not ready to open. And yeah. I don't think my family's ever going to open that box up. But yes, it, it does bring perspective of what the DNA test can really bring because I didn't take it seriously enough. I personally thought, well, I already know who I am. Why do I care? Yeah. But it opens up another dialogue of stories. Um, I saw one distant relative of mine that uh, is adopted, but you know, there's, it, it adds this curiosity yeah. of what happened. I mean, I mean, yeah. a few things, a few things there. That's all, that's, it's such a good story. And not good, like, oh, yeah, it's wonderful that your grandmother never knew her sister. But right. good because, like, it illustrates something that I've always kind of, like, believed in, but haven't really been able to vocalize, which is that, like, the story of, of, Southeast Asian Americans in America is ultimately the story of loss. Mm -hmm. Every everyone has a story where they lost someone because of what happened. 
And for a lot of people, they lost an entire country, you know? And because of that loss, for better or for worse, like we've ended up with our lives now. But that doesn't take away the fact that the loss is kind of this catalyst that created what we have now. So yeah, I think I think every Vietnamese American person has a story like that, kind of like what your your grandmother went through. Um, yeah, I I think that's and I mean to the point about like taking these DNA tests. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I always try to tell people because ever since I got into uh, these DNA testing kits. Uh, I consider myself a genetic genealogist now because, you know, that's just what you are when you take these things and you try to analyze. And I always tell people if they want to get into genetic genealogy, even if they want to just buy the 23andMe kit on Christmas uh, for, for as a Christmas gift for someone, I mean, I, I tell them that the first thing you need to understand is you're, you might and will likely get news that you won't like because that happens all the time. People take these kits thinking like, oh, it's gonna be fun. I'm gonna find out what race I am and like see what what part of Europe my family's from, that kind of thing. When in reality, like they're gonna find news that might devastate and irrevocably change the dynamics of the way they see their family, the way they see themselves. I mean, so many stories of people who've taken these tests and found out things like, oh, my father isn't actually my father, it's somebody else. Mm. Or Oh, I'm actually adopted. Like, how? What? Like, my parents never told me that. Or, or, or something like, oh, my grandmother isn't who she says she is. Or we, we had a different name, or what have you. And that's part of the risk you take whenever you take these DNA testing kits. You know, forget, forget privacy. Forget, forget all those weird, sticky ethical issues there. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to find things out that you might not like, and you need to be ready for that for sure. You know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a really good po- uh, point that you bring up because not every yeah. DNA discovery leads to celebration balloons and pop and circumstances. It right. unfortunately brings reopens or creates a new uh, sense creates new trauma. It creates right. a lot of, um, or it reopens old trauma, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that there's always a caution when you do this. And it is terrifying to know what your DNA can unlock, what that little sample of yours can unlock thousands of years of genetic history. It's, it amazes me. Um, So recently, you did that documentary through 23andMe. And yeah, I saw it. It's a short clip. And for all the listeners, uh, you can Google Tony Ho or you can go to YouTube just look up Tony Hotran, 23andMe, and there is a video, yeah. uh, a short documentary about your, um, about your mother, your grandmother, and yeah. you uh, talking about what we had just shared right now. And sure. I watched it and it was, it was so heartbreaking to watch because yeah. <laughs> to see your grandmother and to see your mother overwhelmed with such emotions. Yeah. I mean, to see older Asian women crying gets me big time and I had a hard time watching it I actually had my mom watch it with me in the car and my mom was moved by it but she also told me about my grandma's 
anti-blackness and that she yeah. did not want to be anywhere near black people in oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but in her dying months being in a nursing home she was cared for by black employees it's the irony which man. i thought yeah. was so ironic yeah but yet she seemed okay with it because she was under dementia which i thought was yeah. um weirdly ironic and kind of amusing to me because it's yeah like, it's the first time i've seen that it happen. is that it is darkly humorous yeah yes absolutely so yeah what was that experience like doing that short documentary and having your mom and oh grandma yeah share so, that yeah i mean like i was reached out to about this production company based out of new york and new jersey i don't really remember now but they 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 had reached out to me and they're like hey we're, we're this production company. We have this deal with the Tribeca Film Festival and also 23andMe to produce a documentary uh, about someone's genealogy journey using, you know, 23andMe. Uh, we found your story. We loved it. We would love to make a documentary about it. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I didn't really think much of it at first. I think I ignored the email for like two days and they actually had to email me back because I was like, yeah, this seems kind of, I was afraid, frankly, it was going to be kind of a scam. Yeah. They followed up with me and I followed up with them and I checked their credentials and they were, they were legit. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like, um, and I was like, yeah, sure. I think this is, that might be a good idea. And I suggested flying them out to, I mean, them flying to Sioux City, Iowa, where we could film everything. I flew out there as well. They bought me my ticket and we were able to um, film this documentary uh, within the span of like a day, a day and a half. And I remember um, <laughs> them telling my parents about this and they were, my father was like very, very much into this idea that our family was gonna be filmed and like be a part of this big film festival and everything. Uh, my mother on the over, on the other hand was much more nervous about things. Yeah. Um, not only did she know that she would have to like talk about what happened and what she went through, which was very painful for her, but she, she also knew that the world was gonna see this you know and we've we've talked about this already but like vietnamese people can be kind of cagey about their feelings and like yeah. to all of a sudden have the entire world know about this like, that's crazy yeah. and my grandmother was especially that way and it took a little bit convincing for us to get her involved as well but ultimately she, you know after i explained to her how important it was to me and how people wouldn't think less of her for it like that kind of thing um then she agreed to do it but yeah the experience was great I, I loved the production crew that I worked with. It was wonderful. And um, we really got into it. And I, 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 I learned a lot about how documentaries are filmed nowadays. Yeah. And it was, a, it was kind of like a long, really kind of like a tiring process because it took like mm -hmm. all day of them filming us and drilling us with questions and trying to get B-roll footage and us yeah. running all over town. And I was very tired by the end of the day. But ultimately, I mean, I was super pleased with the result of it. Uh, obviously, like... I, that I was doing this for them, but I was like, I was very happy about what they, they came up with. And I, I, mm -hmm. I think it told our story succinctly, because uh, it was short, um, but also they told it very well. They captured kind of the, the trauma that my, my mom and my, my, my grandmother experienced, and also the struggle that I experienced trying to find the identity of my grandfather. Mm. Now that you have this information of who you are, Right. on a DNA standpoint. Now, how has having partial black lineage impacted your own understanding of the black community? 
That's a great question. And it's one that I've actually kind of been knocking around in my head for the past, you know, three, four years now, just thinking about like, what, well, what does that actually mean? Like, I know that I'm black now. What, what does that really mean though? Because, you know, what the, what, what being black is, it, it goes beyond ethnicity. It goes beyond what your DNA kit might tell you, you know? Black, blackness is, is a culture, but m more than that, it's, it's a lived experience, you know? I, I don't know what it's like to be black, you know? I've grown up my whole life technically being black. My, my mom grew up her whole life technically being black. Do we know what the black experience is like in America? Hell no, absolutely not. Will we ever really know? No, absolutely not. That said though, it's a culture and it's an experience that I have, I now have family that I know have went through. And that's important to me. That's important to me to understand what that experience is like then, what that means to them and what it means to other people. I, I'm, I come from slaves, you know? My mom and I, my brother <clears throat> and I, we come from slaves. People, our, our, our people were subjugated and owned um in two different ways you know first through slavery through the the the, the horrible uh, uh blemish on our country's history that was slavery but also through the vietnam war that's two ways that we've been, essentially been been subjugated by america and i don't know for for me i i intend to explore it more in in the future as, as I age and grow and talk to more people about it. Because I, I, I do think that it's very important that I know, I know this part of my past, that I know this part of my history. Because I, I, if, I, if, I, if I am willing to go out and do it with my Vietnamese side and learn the history of things like what happened in 1975, then why wouldn't I go back and try to learn about 1775? you know yeah that's very powerful and yeah. my gosh that is such a incredible conversation we're having today and so with this year and moving forward now that your mom and grandma have started to understand more about their past mm -hmm. and and where i want to say or I, I'm still kind of struggling at a question here, so forgive me. It's all good. No, no. Sure. How has it impacted your mom and grandma moving forward? And also, yeah, you've had you've kind of touched on it uh, just a moment sure. ago about what do you do with that history now that you've uh, have a better understanding of it. So, what do you see yourself doing moving forward? Yeah. And, also with your mom and grandma now that they have this information now that they've understand that there's family members that yeah. they can have access sure. to i mean obviously not all of them but at least certain family members they can i mean start yeah. to i mean individually my mother wants so badly to connect more with her uncle with her sisters she wants to find out more about this whole family that she now has access to because mm -hmm. after all like she grew up her whole life wanting nothing more than a father something mm -hmm. that i think that i've taken for granted something that 
a lot of people have taken for granted. Yeah. If I have kids, they'll take it for granted. Having just a dad in her life mm-hmm. and having a family that she could rely on. And I think for her, the most important thing for her now is to be able to connect with them and know that she will, she will be there for them in a way that her father wasn't necessarily there for her. Um, for my grandmother, on the other hand, I, I think she is, she was very happy that I found the identity of my grandfather. And I remember she called me when the day, the day it happened and she told me how proud she was of me and how smart I was. She was doing, <laughs> saying grandma stuff about that. Like, Oh, I'm so proud of you. Like you're so wonderful. That kind of thing. And she was very happy, but I think for her, that that's it. That's the end of it. I mean, and it makes sense. She knows now who this man was that she was in love with and who she shared this time with and who helped father her, her daughter and also eventually helped Brit usher into her grandkids, you know, because of it. And I remember I came home to visit her a few months ago and I saw on, on like an altar that she had set up there, you know, that, Vietnamese families, they have like a Buddhist altar, that kind of thing. Yes. She set up like, with the incense and the whole the whole shebang. She set up a a picture, a framed portrait of of my grandfather, the one that I had found. Wow. <laughs> I, yeah, I thought that was just so funny because um, for her, like I could tell at least then how important it was for her that I not only found his identity, but that now she knows who he is. You know. Yeah, and she can finally honor him too. Yeah. Be able exactly. to mourn and also be able to mourn his passing. Yeah. Mourn right. his passing, mourn all the years that they weren't together. And, and and also, you know, and I just thought about it now, but also like honoring the fact that that without him, your mother wouldn't be born. Yeah. And you and your brother, so, who are her grandsons, would yeah. not be here. So I think yeah. that is a very poignant uh part of this yeah. whole journey a very complicated roller coaster journey as it is but that in the end you know that there's something to be very proud of as she's looking at you and your brother and you know your family as a whole and yeah i I think it's just wonderful just incredible and so honored that you were sharing that you've been sharing this journey with me but also in other uh storytelling spaces and do that recent documentary which i do highly recommend uh watching if you haven't seen it um yeah don't know uh looking in hindsight because you are now in your late 20s yeah so what do you have to say to someone or maybe to your younger self of 15 years old i'm gonna throw an age 15 years old yeah 15 is a good age as a person who is then struggling with being a mixed person being othered in that community. What would you say to that 15 year old self and to really any young uh, mixed mixed uh, identity uh, folks out there? Um, I, would, I would tell any, any mixed person, but especially myself at 15, I would, I would tell him that you are the most powerful person in the world. And I don't mean that like you have superpowers and you can lift the car above your head. I don't mean that even like, oh, you, you wield this like great social power and you can manipulate people. But I, I would tell him that 
you will one day be able to uncover the secrets of your family. The, this thing that you thought you would never be able to find. This thing that your, your mother has never been able to find. That your brother has also wanted so badly. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to uncover this. And you're going to be able to give your mother the greatest gift that you, you will ever give her. And what you did then goes to show that everything that you went through, every slur that has ever been thrown your way, every stupid question of what are you, um, none of that matters. Because you were able to climb this mountain and make it to the top. You are the most powerful person in the world. You can change your, your circumstances and you can, you, you, you can do the thing you thought was impossible. Um, I would say that to any mixed race person, because because sometimes you know, we we don't really we we don't know you know you don't realize how much power you do wield with just some determination, some grit. You we we can accomplish pretty much anything. I I honestly do believe that. Man, that is so powerful, yeah. and I want to say that. From the bottom of my heart, I am so yeah. honored to have known you for the past year and a half. I feel Aww. like we've known each other longer. You're like a, a little bro yeah. to me. And oh, bro. No, I really, dude, I, I really appreciate that. I'm really glad you reached out that first uh, day. It, when I told that story, you had invited me to lunch. I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I, I'm so happy you did that because, you know, yeah. I, I did. It, it's because, been great, man. Yeah, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a bleeding heart when it comes to our own community members especially like around my age group uh, because we're all still trying to discover our stories we're still trying to discover our family's history before our parents our grandparents well my grandparents are all gone now but before they transition and that has been on my mind quite a bit Uh, I know for the purpose of the season I always have it on my mind like we've got to start having these conversations with our family members before it's too late because granted um i like to walk around with fewer questions for the rest of my life where i don't have to keep speculating yes there's always gonna be a question here or two that i'm sure will happen down the road but i like to get some of the many questions out of the way before it is too late and so i I I think think yeah yeah no i think that's so it's so important and I think that's something that absolutely everyone should do. Because, I mean, one day we will reach a point where we will be wondering or stinging to ourselves, man, what I wouldn't give for five more minutes with mom or dad, with, with my grandma. Absolutely. I, I, what I wish, what I wouldn't give to just ask them these weird questions that I've always had or, you know, little things, you know, like what's your fa- what was your favorite color or what was your favorite book while you were growing up in school? Yeah. These are questions these are questions we take for granted, you know? Like, yeah. like you you wouldn't think to ask it now. Like cuz who cares? Like you'd rather talk about like oh yeah, I got a speeding ticket the other day. Who gives a shit about that, you know? Ask your ask your parents the little things. What was your favorite food growing up? Yeah. You know? Like who, yeah. did you have a bully? What was that like for you? Yeah. The important stuff, you know, that it doesn't seem important now, but one day it will be the most important questions in the world that, you know, 
you're going to wish you had the answer still. Absolutely. And guess what? Don't think that for a second. I mean, I won't have kids. I, I'm 99.999% sure I won't have kids. Who knows? Oh. Something weird might happen. Uh, please don't leave that out <laughs> to the universe like that. Um, but I will say that who's to say that your own future kids won't ask you those questions, right? Yeah. You know, you'll have a little Tony be asking that oh, uh, same curious question that you were back yeah. when you were five years old. So, yeah, I, I think that mm-hmm. one day when you are in that position to be a father, yeah. or if you choose to have kids, or if you have like nieces and nephews, um, that you're more ready to a- answer those questions yeah. better than your parents could growing up, right? Yeah. So, uh, with that said, I want to say thank you so much for being yeah. on here today. Uh, thank you for an amazing, yeah. uh, no. wonderful conversation and for really sharing so much insight about your family and, and the way that you do it. It's it's very appreciated, oh. and it's something that I don't ever want to take for granted. Oh, sure. No, Randy, thank you so much for having me on today. I was nervous about this. I told you this before, but no, no, this this went super well. You asked great questions, and I, I'm excited to hear the product of this. And uh, I'm excited to see where the Bumpy Chronicles goes into the future. Yeah, thank you so much, Tony. Have a good one. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Randy. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bun Me Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunme underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm-hmm.